listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Welcome to By the Well. I'm Sean Winter. I'm Kylie Crabb. Welcome back, Kylie. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 28. We're back in Romans 8, verses 26 to 39, and we're also back in Matthew 13, this time looking at verses 31 to 33 and 44 to 52. And those are the readings collectively for the ninth Sunday uh, in Pentecost. Um, so, Kylie, I think you wanted to ask me about Genesis yeah, I'm, 29, I'm, didn't you? Well, um, I, I want to know, Sean, is this just, you know, we've just got a kind of, you know, reality television show about different versions of wives being met and whatnot, or what is what are we going to get out of this Genesis reading? So this is the story of Jacob finding a wife. Um, having uh, encountered God at the sanctuary of Bethel, he then makes his way um, to the land of the people of the east, as it says at the beginning of verse 20, uh, chapter 29, sorry. And they're at a well, um, familiar story. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Patriarch wants a wife. That's it always right. has this kind of... Uh, at a well, <laughs> he meets Rachel. And the first half of Genesis 29 basically sets up pretty much like the Isaac story, Um, uh, except there isn't a servant involved. But basically, by the well, Jacob meets the person who he will marry and have children with and so ensure that the line of Abraham's descendants will continue Mm. and the covenant promises will continue. And into this uh, kind of romantic story, um, the uncle of uh, uh, Rachel... Uh, comes along and drives a truck through the middle of the story, um, uh, destroying everything around him, and does it in the most interesting of ways by tricking Jacob, yes. who is the trickiest trickster yeah, yeah, in yeah, yeah. the patriarchal stories of Genesis. Right. So Jacob gets a serve of his own medicine, uh, yep. effectively, Um and uh, does so by uh, being tricked in order to be able to work in yep. some degree of servitude to Laban yep. um, and eventually does so and eventually the story comes good. Yeah. I mean, I, I really don't know what to do with this story at one level except to say that I think, uh, you know, whenever we look at stories and we're thinking about preaching, we very often want to ask the, the question, well, kind of, you know, what's the theological point that this is moving mm. towards? and or what's the ethical point that this is moving towards and in neither case do i think yes. we have a clear answer in this story yes so it's a bit of a romp it's kind of entertaining story yeah um, and uh i think it can be retold with a good deal of kind of you know um verve and drama yep. but i suspect that the most that you can probably get out of it is is this basic thing that we've seen time and time again namely that God makes a promise to Abraham and that promise has to be worked out in the realities of Abraham's world and family line and all of the problems that come from family, culture, ancient Near Eastern societies, cultural practices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And because God's promises are worked out on the arena of human behaviour, there is always the capacity for human beings to do things that drive a truck through the middle of that story of those promises being unfolded. And that's what we have here. Yeah, yeah. So the point is, 
even though that's the case, somehow yeah, yeah, <laughs> these things right. come around and, right. um, and God brings them together in a way that means that God's promise is ultimately fulfilled. Yes, yes, I think that's right. You get this um, inversion, right? There's this, the bit when Laban says, we don't do it that way here because we don't put the, the younger before the elder. But, of course, that's exactly what's already happened. And I think that is that I think you're entirely right. This is... This is comedy. This is a kind of story that um, you you read along and and you laugh, and yet the promises uh, persist, and Jacob remains a patriarch, and 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 we press on. Absolutely. So um, so uh, do it as a dramatic reenactment if you want to on uh, on a given Sunday, or um, uh, find a way of weaving it into a theme about divine providence, which is a theme we'll come on to yes. later on. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that a rigorous exegetical treatment of this yeah. story is going to elicit much no, more no. than that basic theological idea. Which means we should probably move on to yes, Romans. Yes, that's right. So, Kylie, I've spent quite a lot of time talking about Romans 8 on By the Well uh, over the last few weeks. So um, why, don't, why don't you start off? We're, we're coming to the end of Romans 8, and it's probably mm. the bit of Romans 8 that people know best. Because it gets read at funerals a bit, particularly yes. the last section. Yes. Um, but how, how does the argument um, come to this kind of conclusion? What are the kind of things that Paul finds himself saying um, as he continues to talk about what it means to live in the new creation? Yes. Well, that I I would say that um, I, I can I can I think that this reading just has so many beautiful lines in it. And while we're going to talk, while we are going to talk about sort of the steps in the argument and how to and seeing it within the context of Romans in general and Romans eight specifically, um, I I do think that there are also lines you could just you could just pull out and and reflect upon um, in and of themselves. So the very beginning of this um, section, which is, of course, building from what we spoke about last week, um, with this line, the Spirit helps us in our weakness and goes on. Um, The the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. So this this idea of, um, you know, we've moved in the previous section talking about um, creation and the groaning of creation, the groaning of us, you know, the, the, all of these things being brought together in the the imagery of, of labour and childbirth. Um, and now we've got this sense of the Spirit who comes to us where we are, mm. intercedes with sighs too deep for words and searches the heart. Mm. So, so we have we have all of this, I think, which is a, a great um, grounding for for reflection and solace um, as as we gather for worship. And then we're going to move into this this kind of next bit where we. Um, I've got some questions for you, actually, Sean. I can see you're just trying to hand it over to me, but we're going to come back to the Pauline Scholar to talk about this. Let, let's but talk the, about that size too deep for words for a yes. minute because I think it's a really interesting – and what strikes me is um, the talk of the Spirit has happened previously from verses 12 onwards where we've had this stuff about um, the, the Spirit uh, – Yes. Um, making us children of God, leading yes, us from yes. slavery to adoption. Yes. And then we move into this story of creation and creation's groaning. And then we come back to the Spirit mm. praying. And the um, the uh, verb that is used in verse 26 is a verb that's usually translated the Spirit interceding mm. um, with sighs too deep for words. Mm. And I think what's really interesting is prayer then becomes not straightforwardly just a kind of manifestation of our relationship with God, prayer becomes something that orients us 
towards the groanings of creation. It, we we mm. take on, mm. I mean, what otherwise we might call a kind of priestly or representative responsibility for praying for creation in its suffering and its groaning and its anticipation. And when we do that, mm. that's when the spirit needs to take over because sometimes we just don't, don't have know. words. We yes. don't know what to pray. Yes. And and what a what an um a beautiful image too that it is, you know, that this is the spirit in us meeting our our need and our loss for words. Um so that in fact that this prayer is is not even um of course it then makes sense that you don't have to have the perfect words or you don't have because in fact it is God already at work in us that meeting us in this encounter. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's a kind of deep and uh, resonant and kind of engaged mm. embodied spirituality that's at work here yes. that a preacher might well consider. Yes. But you wanted to ask me about predestination. I do. Right? Well, I, I, exactly a range of things. Well, of course we move straight from here into the that all things work together for good for those who love God, God and are called to his purpose and then we're going to move after that into into some predestination language. So uh, tell me Sean what are we to make of this mm. language? Um well, uh, there is, of course, a Christian tradition that um, interprets predestination language very much along the lines of the kind of um, dualisms that we were exploring last week in relation to Matthew's parables. Mm. You know, there, there are some going up and there are some going down. There are some going to be with God. There are some going into the pit mm-hmm. of eternal punishment. Mm. Um, and predestination as a kind of theology and as Paul has been interpreted is often understood as a way of talking about the fact that God being sovereign um, has already predetermined uh, who is in which category and effectively all we are doing is seeing that plan working itself out mm. within the complexity of human affairs and society and history and and culture and everything else. Um, I have a bit of a problem with that way of reading it, not because Paul doesn't say things like that. Later on he'll talk about um, predestination in relation to uh, um, Israel, for example, very yep. clearly. But even when Paul does it, he kind of pulls the rug out from un- under us yes. because he'll talk about God choosing Pharaoh, pre- yes. predestining Pharaoh to do certain things yes. so that God's purposes may be fulfilled. And what happens here is that the language of predestination is connected strongly to the language of universality. Yes. Okay, So all things work together for good for those who loved God, who are called called according to His purpose, um, the Son, uh, who is Jesus, is the firstborn of a large family. And then, when Paul starts to talk about who is in that family, well, the whole of Romans is designed to say that family is far, far bigger than you ever expected. Yes. yes. Romans nine to eleven is are uh, three chapters to say you thought you knew who was in this family, yes. actually. God's family is uh, much bigger and includes people that you thought were never included. Um, and this is the very outworking of God's predestinated, pr- yep. predestinated, that's the wrong <laughs> word. Predestined. <laughs> predestined um, purposes. And that God is in control of that, right? And God God can remove grafted parts of the olive tree, you right, know, put different new parts on. Yep, this Absolutely. family can be made by God Absolutely. as big as God wants. And then what strikes me in Romans 8 is that when Paul immediately starts to unpack this language, um, okay, uh, if God is for us, who is against us? Mm. Well, who is the us? Well, suddenly we get this notion that actually there's nothing 
that can separate us from God's love. There is no barrier to the exercise um, of God's love. Um, God uh, justifies us, so who is there to condemn us? The implied answer is um, no one. Mm -hmm. So we are more than conquerors. And in the end, not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. Now, at that point, the us is still the same us as the us who are predestined. Mm. But the canvas is about as broad as you can possibly paint it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, the, the line that I was going to, de- I was determined to use today is, I, I, know, that, I know that many people... Um, predetermined. May, uh, yeah, yeah, predestined to say this. Um, uh, you know, many people will have theologies that kind of don't allow them to get to a point where they can think about universalist salvation or God mm. saving all people or all things. Mm. And I understand exactly the reason why. But if there's any Sunday on which <laughs> yeah. you get close to saying that actually God's redemptive purposes end with mm. all being included in the us, mm. this is probably the Sunday to do mm. it because this is the text where Paul gets closest mm. uh, to it. Mm. Um, you know, famously, Karl Barth was once asked, "Is he a universalist?" And he said, "I'm not sure, but I hope that God is." And I, and I think I think that that's really the yes. thing that this passage is drawing yes. us um, yes. towards in a significant way, and it does so with this astonishing crescendo. I mean, this is yes. one of the most moving and powerful passages yes. um, in Paul's letters, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. And so, in fact, what you're saying is, even though there's this potentially tricky language in this middle bit that some of us might stumble over as we read this, you know, um, those he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, that in fact, what we're leading to in this kind of bigger picture is this idea that in fact, those whom he did all those things for is all. Yeah, is all are called into this. So um, it's certainly one of the things that I um, find quite striking about this passage as it continues its crescendo there and you're thinking about, mm. um, you know, this this kind of thing about who can bring any charge against God's elect, remembering this is then yep. In, yep. in the idea of this um, earlier rhetoric that is all. Um, and, and the context here, of course, is the extraordinary stuff that Paul has been dealing with throughout all of Romans, really, about what God has done in Christ, which has this kind of cosmic, enormous kind of implications, um, is, is to say that, you know, if the, only, um, if the only one capable of bringing condemnation against us is the one who has at the same time gone to these kinds of lengths to release us from you know, captivity to death or captivity to the kind of metaphorical slavery he's going to talk about, he talked about. Um, if that is the only one who can bring uh, condemnation against us, then why would God do that? That's right. God has already gone to these extraordinary links. And That's so right. that is the basis on which he then builds into this beautiful section. Again, another section of this reading you could just read and, you know, reflect on together um, about all the different things that are. Um, that Paul is convinced cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think I'd really encourage preachers to think about, I mean, I, uh, this is one of those places where Paul's language just kind of mm. takes off. And mm. I mean, how, how, do we, how do we convey something of the, um, the breadth and the span and the poetry mm. and the drama and the, the scope of um, that, that form of language? I think it's a really um, uh, uh, invitational text to yeah. ask ask us the question, what language do we reach for that gives people the hope that um, it it 
it, it doesn't matter what feels like it's in the way. Yes, <laughs> yes. This is where this is what connects back to yes. Laban, by the way. It doesn't matter what truck has been driven yeah. through the <laughs> yes, middle of the story. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, nothing gets in the way of yes. the triumph of divine love as that divine love has been shown to us in the death yes. and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I, yes. I, I think that um, that for Paul is what gospel is and that is what gospel means and what we should be trying to convey yes. to other people as well. I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know, without obviously it's a high register kind of language, so I don't mean to kind of um, suggest that we introduce mundanities into that necessarily, but I have seen this, you know, really effectively used as well by um, inserting into into this, you know, liturgically things that people might name as being the things that are in the way, you know, right. that there is no cancer diagnosis, there is no pandemic, there, you know, like and not trivialising this, but the things that really are the things that you know in your pastoral ministry setting are the things that are hard for people without exposing any individuals, of course. But, you know, like, and, and to name these and saying all of this stuff in the face of this, we are more than conquerors. Absolutely. And it doesn't separate. I mean, it still exists. It's still real, yes. but it doesn't separate us from the yes. triumph of divine love. Beautiful. Thanks, Sean. Okay, well, we're back at Matthew chapter 13, and um, we again are jumping around just a little bit, verses 31 to 33, um, where we get two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, um, sometimes called the parable of the yeast, we'll come back to that, (laughs) Um, and then uh, three more parables uh, in verses 44 to uh, verse 40, verse 50. Yep. Um, and then we get a kind of little conclusion saying, which is the end of this Mathean discourse. In uh, where, where do you want to start, Kylie? Do you want to pick a parable or do you want to go to the end and ask about that? Well, it's, there's a lot going on, isn't there? I think what the first thing to say is, I mean, obviously this is the nested story that is the bit that was also missing in the lectionary bit from last, last week. week. So <clears throat> people are, you know, it's it's right to be suspicious about when the lectionary skips something. But um, this time we're, it's actually filling in the gaps. Um, and then we've got this like million little, um, or whatever it actually is, seven or something like this, uh, parables all in, all in a row and they're short. So I guess the first thing to say is think about how you're going to use them rather than a mishmash of, you know, um, what we used to – call it our house kind of like compost juice when you make the fresh juice out of all the things left in the bottom of the fridge rather than picking, you know, curating the right things to have. So, Sounds delicious. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, exactly. So, you know, they pick the parable that you, you're going to talk about or the set of parables or something um, and, and you know, engaging them in that kind of way. So I guess on that note, and now I'm going to clump two together because I'm going to think about, you know, there's the, we begin with these two, right, that are about growth, about things that grow from unexpectedly tiny, tiny little things into bigger things one of which is about leaven sean leaven. tell us about this well i so um and i i think I, I want to name it because i think uh you made the point last week i think that i mean clearly when we read the parables we're dealing with uh, narratives that have cultural assumptions and cultural practices related mm-hmm. to them and all sorts of illusions that we wouldn't necessarily pick up so you do need to do the historical work to actually ask what's going on. What's a mustard mm. seed, for example? Yes. Okay, And then you need to ask, well, what is it that the woman takes and mixes in with three measures of flour? And it's not yeast. It's not yeast. Okay. So yeast is a modern product. It's a, um, a kind of organically stable um, uh, bacteria that um, enables um, uh, growth 
bacterial growth. Um, but in the ancient world, as in um, many households during lockdown, <laughs> yes. um, what was used instead was leaven. And leaven is basically um, putrefying, fermenting flour and water or, or, or Telling me she's making sourdough She's here. making sourdough. Okay. All right. Um, but what's really important is that everywhere in the world of Jesus, leaven is a negative image. Yes. It's, a le- it's an image of impurity, corruption, evil. Um, beware the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Indeed. Right, exactly. Yes. So, so the nearest version I've got to this parable, the modern version, is this is like, you know, one rotten apple spoils the whole yes. the barrel. <laughs> yes. This is what this woman is doing. <laughs> Take your rotten apple. <laughs> That's right. Take your rotten apple and stick it in all this good flat. Now, we know that, of course, bread is created out of this Mm. and you're right to say that the amount of bread produced or the amount of flour that is used is an enormous amount yes um but the point is that uh jesus uses this absolutely striking image of something that you might regard as impure um inappropriately used and that Mm. becomes the point of or the, the the mechanism or the um, thing that enables transformation to begin and to take place in this extraordinary way. Mm. So the kingdom of heaven is like something sort of radical and potentially unpalatable and the, dangerous. The, the, the thing that you think will contaminate yeah. you yeah. is the thing that you need in the kingdom of heaven for growth and transformation to take yes. place. Yes. That's an example of how you do a bit of historical research and suddenly all sorts of other layers of meaning yes. come back. I learned it from what I think is one of the best books on the parables, which is uh, Bernard Brandon Scott's Here Then the Parable, which I don't think is right on everything, but is just an excellently suggestive right. discussion of a number of these parables, I think. Yeah, terrific. So um, so uh, the mustard seed is also about growth. You're right, the smallest of all the seeds. Um, we don't think that's... a um, botanically quite correct <laughs> statement. But, don't uh, use that in science class, <laughs> but it's right. fine here. Um, but yep. it's fine here. Um, and then you get uh, the creation of the tree. And then we get um, parables later on from verses 44 onwards of mm. uh, hiding things. Yes. Hiding things is also a negative image. Yes. Um, the woman actually hides the leaven. Um, yes. It says mixed in the translation, but it actually hides I the leaven yeah, in the yeah, flour. Yeah. Um, treasure is hidden in a field. Um, and then the language of discovery. So yes. the notion of, well, as you well know, the language of so the discovery of something that's been hidden is standard uh, an apocalyptic trope for the language of revelation or divine, um, yes. divine self-communication um, yes. in some way or another. But they're done in these kind of really pithy one-liner ways and it's it's which means that probably there are all number of different directions in which you can take them because the meaning quite clearly isn't fixed in a particular direction i don't think for any of these yeah and they're definitely not you know if we contrast it with like last week's more allegorical use of the parable where you get in that explanation bit if you preached on matthew last week um you know each part of the parable is given um a meaning and then it's sort of expanded on this is definitely not that kind of parable because it's just as sean saints just like one line or something you know it's um, it, it's an image, really. And I think actually one of the things I noticed too about the the hiddenness side of it is that if we're thinking um, maybe in apocalyptic terms or we're just thinking about it in terms of if the kingdom of heaven is like this, it mm. might be 
that the hiding is in the past, mm. right? And the thing that it's being made manifest now. So in fact, the, we're getting the emphasis on the disclosure of it rather than the hiding. Yeah, good. The emphasis on, um, you know, I think some of these ones, I, I, I mean, I think we often just skip over these ones actually, but the, you know, the thing about like the pearl of great price and the, and the, the hidden treasure, it's worth reflecting on the, the, the emotions that are part of this story and thinking about, you know, this, this is a story about relativizing everything else that you've found because of what you found, right? So the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who stumbles upon something and then it completely reorders all of their priorities and they are full of joy. Now, that takes us to the passage that I think really ties all of that together a bit, Mm. which are the last three verses, verses 51 to 53, where this notion of, um, well, I think what lies behind it is this notion that what the kingdom of God does is it discloses something that has been there but that you've not yes. been able to see before yes. if only you have the eyes to see it. Yes. Um, so uh, what we get then is this image, uh, I mean, it's, it's wonderfully, give, given all the stuff that's been yep. written about the parables in Matthew 13, verse 51 is fantastic, isn't yes, it? Yes, I agree. Have you understood all this? Yes. Yes. Um, that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> well done all. This is the disciples, right? That, that's the disciples. He's explaining it to that's the... That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they get it first time round. Good for them. Good for um, them. We're still working on but it. But then we have this saying, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of the household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So you get this notion that a scribe is someone who goes back to what is already there and brings out of it not just old stuff, but yes. new stuff comes out of yes. the old treasure in some way or another. And it's a really fascinating image. What What do you think is going on there? Why? Yes. What What does the image convey? I think for Matthew, I th- I think it conveys something. I think it. I think you're right. It is a really interesting thing to reflect on, and I think that throughout Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus very clearly engaging with his heritage, with his scriptural tradition, interpreting the law of Moses. All of this stuff is th- is just throughout, um, sort of like the leaven in the in the flour. It is throughout the gospel that he's doing this. Um, but but it is um, it is not he he's applying it to a new context. Right. He's giving it a I mean, there's obviously a Christological meaning to how this works in the gospel. But you know, he's 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 giving this a, a new meaning, and I think that we're invited here at the end of this chapter of parables to think about um, uh, how we use scripture. You know that this is the this is the um, the one who's addressed by this gospel reading here, us in our time or its first readers. How are we using the the traditions that we're drawing out? So we we definitely still we're we're a um, a scribe who has understood this. Um, we'll definitely still bring out old treasure, and we've got all this old treasure. Yeah. But it's not just that; it's it's also new. It's also recontextualized. Matthew has a strong redactional interest in scribes throughout the mm. gospel, I think, and some people have suggested that this is where Matthew kind of gives the game away f- right. about his own identity, that this is a kind of revelation of um, who Matthew understands himself to be. Mm. Um, he is the one who is a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven who goes back, you know, think of the genealogy, the yes. fulfilment quotations in, in the birth narratives and onwards. Matthew is the one articulating how the new thing emerges out of the story of Israel in, in crucial ways. Um, 
but it's not just one person it's every scribe who yes. has been trained um which suggests that it's almost a kind of motif of discipleship yes um I, I think um there's a really important idea that we think of discipleship as a matter of action or of praxis but to think about discipleship also as developing skills in interpretation, hermeneutical mm. skills, yes. um, capacity to understand and discern um, scripture and the way in which the scripture and the tradition yes. are not the things that um, that stand over against progress or the new or you know change, but are the very treasure out of which the capacity for renewal can take place that's that's mm. a really important discipleship mm. skill it seems to me mm. um which means that of course all discipleship is a matter of education as much as anything else yes thank you sean i think that across those passages that we've looked at today there's so much rich material for preaching and worship leading on the on these texts from the size too deep for words of of Paul and that crescendo um, through to all of this about the the nature of um, the treasure that we have encountered in Christian life and uh, how we responsibly bring it out uh, for people in, in our services this weekend. Thanks, Thank Kylie. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>